This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. What I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good, you can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have my good friend, Karani Truzzi from North Carolina. Uh, Karani, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Michael. Yeah, well, thank you for joining me here. We're here in beautiful New Orleans uh, at the AAJ Winter Convention, and thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule. I just heard you give a great speech this morning, and uh, it's good to see you. Good seeing you, too. So, I want to... We're here to talk about today, I guess you practice in North Carolina, right. and uh, you guys have some challenges that the rest of us, uh, most of the rest of us don't have. You have contributory negligence as a pure bar, you've got a pretty bad sudden emergency law, uh, and I want to you know, talk to you a little bit. I think you'd have something to give, because if you can win a case in North Carolina, you win a case anywhere. Uh, I believe that. But before I go into the legal stuff, I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, so... First of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. So, uh, I've been practicing now a little over 19 years. Um, married. I've got my one wife, Ebony. Um, I've got uh, three kids, daughter Addison, uh, twin boys. Uh, my daughter's 14. My boys are 11 years old. They give me a run for my money. I bet. Um, all over the place. Um, I work with the law firm of Crumley Roberts. Um, I live in Winston-Salem, but I'm based out of our Greensboro office, and I travel all over North Carolina, parts of South Carolina, Virginia, trying cases. And what kind of cases do you, do you handle? Um, right now, I'd say it's probably about um, 50% um, regular auto injury type cases. I handle um, probably about 25 to 30% trucking cases, and the remainder is a mixture between 1983 cases and some other death-type cases, such as like nursing home and things of that nature. So 1983, you're like about civil rights? That's correct. Uh, before I kind of get into legal stuff, too, and, uh, you know, we were, I was lucky enough to have breakfast with you last week, and we were going to have dinner, and actually you had daddy things to do. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit, because it's a big factor in my life, and it's a big factor for a lot of our listeners. How do you balance being a successful lawyer with a multi-state practice with trying to be a father and a husband? I will tell you, uh, one of the things that I found out is that people make time for things that are important to them. Um, and when you got competing things like practicing law and the family, both of those things are extremely important to me. Number one, with practicing law, I really enjoy what I do. Um, my wife and I, we, we joke, because I met my wife at undergrad, and so she's known me for a very long time, over 30 years now. And the thing that she and I talked about when I was in college was the fact that I really love the law so much to the point that I said, you know, there's going to be a point in time in which I'm doing work for free. Um, and I can't wait for that. That's, my, that's one of my goals. Maybe not for some people, but that's one of my goals that I look forward to. Um, but when it comes to my family, I also realize that without my family, I'm not able to do what I do. Um, my wife, uh, she's a successful person in her own right, and so she spends a lot of time with work also, but we make time for family, and that's the thing. The things that you, they're important to you, you're going to make time for them. So when it comes to my wife, to my kids, there are times when, you know, we're running around during the week and we're seeing each other and passing them on trips or she's on trips for work, and then we finally see each other and say, hey, um, we need to have a date night. Uh, and date night doesn't necessarily mean we go out at night. It can be we go out for lunch and we go catch a matinee movie, you know, yep. things of that nature. And with my with my kids, um, I always said that I want to be hands-on with my kids. And so I really try not to miss any events that my kids are a part of. 
whether it be the dance recital, or whether it be the boys and their bad band performances. I want to be there. I want to be able to capture it. I want them to see my face so that they know, hey, daddy made time to be there for me. And uh, is there anything you do just because, you know, a lot of times people schedule things for us at work. Is there anything you do to make sure that those important times where you don't get some other important work things scheduled? Well, I'm fortunate enough to, to work with... Uh, a set of three paralegals that I've worked with for over 18 years. Wow. And uh, they're, I call them my, my, my work wives because they keep me on track with my schedule. And the, and the great thing about the firm that I work with is that they really put a premium on a work-life balance. And that's been from day one since I started there. That's unusual, especially for a bigger firm. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, I've had times in which, um, you know, the head of my department will come in and say, Karani, you know, you've been spending a lot of time in office. You need to take some time. You need to get away. Um, one of the things Jeremy talking about this morning was, you know, I uh, um, had a complete rupture of my Achilles back in August. Well, one of the things, you know, they were like, Karani, you need to take some time off, get yourself well. And uh, they set me up with a home office where I could, you know, work from home. Um, you know, they came by, checked in on me, made sure everything was going well. But, you know, as far as my staff, because they know, uh, how important family is it's not just important to me it's important to them one of the things that they do they they know my schedule they know my schedule as far as kids performances so i put things on my outlook calendar they make sure to schedule around that if i have to travel they try and make sure that as much as possible the travel takes place in the middle of the week so that on weekends and weekends to spend home with my family that's awesome yeah i've actually had a a, a lawyer i got a nasty email from somebody recently saying well you I know you don't like to work weekends, but it's like, well, actually, I don't. I, I do sometimes, but I don't like to work weekends. And I, and I had just been in a trial where I was out of town. I left on a Sunday. I got back late Friday night. And no, I was not going to work on someone else's case that weekend because, you know, I have two kids and a wife, and there's no point in making all the money in the world if, if we can't enjoy that. Absolutely. So what made you want to do this kind of work? Now, that's a, that's a funny story. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to go to law school. So in high school, I played basketball. I was fortunate enough, I got a basketball scholarship to go to University of South Carolina, Spartanburg, which is the University of South Carolina upstate now. Um, so I played basketball in college, and uh, from the time that I was in high school, I always knew I wanted to go to law school. So it was kind of funny because, you know, we'd be on trips, um, coming back from basketball games and I'm studying for the LSAT and you know everybody else is cutting up on the bus having a good time and I'm back there with the light on and I'm, I'm <laughs> studying um, which is one of the, probably the only times I studied while I was in college was, was, was during that time period but uh, I, um, I grew up in a small town Mount Olive, North Carolina it's in the eastern part of North Carolina and um, from a very early age um, I got to experience being around some really good people. Some really good people that were not only good people from them from them saying, hey, I'm a great person, but were good people for the things that they did for others in the community. Um, that really stuck with me. And the fact that everyone around my town, we'd walk around and everybody knew everyone. And so we were always speaking, always saying hello. The families knew who you were. And, you know, you, if you're getting in trouble, they're, they're calling your mom because it was that kind of relationship. And so, I would, you know, that kind of tailored what I wanted to do with the law because I, I said, you know what, I want to be in something that I can really help people. Uh-huh. Um, you know, as a byproduct, as making good money, part of that, yeah. But I wanted to be into something where, where I can actually help people. Um, I've been practicing for probably six years. Um and in practicing that six years, my, my father became ill and uh, my mother became unable to take care of him. And so she um, had to place him in a nursing facility. And so I began to learn nursing home law so that I could make sure that they were doing what they needed to do for my father. Yeah. And as a byproduct of that, you know, I, I really loved working, you know, with, with, those who were injured in nursing homes. And it gave me a, a even better perspective on helping clients in the personal injury or wrongful death aspect um, because I got to see from a firsthand perspective of the toll it takes when you've got a family member that's um, unable to take care of themselves, um, are dependent on someone else for care, um, 
uh, you know, making sure that the right things are being done so that they, they're here to see your family. And so I kind of want to move to some of the legal stuff now, unless there's something else you want me to ask. No. You. I want to move to some of the legal stuff now. Uh, so North Carolina is a challenging uh, place to practice law. So tell me about what's this contributory negligence. I remember hearing about that in law school saying this is one of the things that they used to be have a long time ago and we got rid of it in the 70s. But you guys. Well, contributory negligence, uh, you know, when I talk to attorneys who come in from out of state and they've got a case in North Carolina, that is the first thing that I tell them about to make sure they're aware of it. Because like you said, a lot of people hear about it in law school and they're like, oh man, that's archaic. No one has that, that law anymore. But actually North Carolina is one of four states that actually still has contributory negligence in effect. And what do you mean by that? So contributory negligence uh, essentially says that if you're at any percent at fault, for your injuries as a result of any kind of collision, accident, things of that nature, that you can't recover. It is a complete bar for recovery, which is unlike most states, which actually have a balancing of comparative negligence to see what the defendant did versus what the plaintiff did. In North Carolina, regardless of what the defendant did, if your client is any percent at fault, there's no recovery. Wow. So how do you deal with that? <laughs> You take a case on a case-by-case basis. I will tell you that um, one of the main areas where that comes into effect um, that I see quite frequently is in pedestrian cases. Because in North Carolina, in pedestrian cases, if you're not crossing in a crosswalk, if you're outside of the crosswalk, then you know that can be a complete bar to your, um, uh, your client's case, regardless of what the defendant did. Now, there are some things that, that are in effect that actually help um, fight contributory negligence, but still, once the it's been my experience that once the jury hears that if you find the plaintiff at any percent at fault, you know they can't recover. That those um, uh, um, uh, exceptions to contributory negligence really don't apply. The jury really throws the law out the door. So, other than being really, really picky with the cases you take, uh, what are some things you learn to try to, you know, I guess get around, disprove your client's own potential 1% of faultness? Well, what ends up happening is is that you have to do a lot of investigation work on the front end. Um, and that means that it's important that, number one, you get the case in early on so that you, if there are witnesses, you can go and talk with witnesses. It's important that you go and talk with law enforcement um, because law enforcement, unfortunately, they don't always get it right. They didn't talk with folks that were there at the scene. Sometimes there's video that helps. Um, but then when you get that information in, um, one, of the, one of the exceptions to contributory negligence is a rule called last clear chance. And so what that essentially says is, is that if the defendant had the last clear chance to avoid um, striking your client if they notice that your client was in a position of peril, then the defendant must do that. And if not, that is an exception to contributory negligence. Wow. Well, the law has kind of evolved in that in that area, and so because it's evolved, the courts have really put a lot of restrictions on that. So when I said earlier that the exceptions really don't apply, I mean, you know, so one of the things that's part of that rule is that um, in order for the defendant to have the last clear chance, they needed the opportunity to observe your client. Well, of course, defense attorneys know that, so when they come in, the first thing that they've already prepped their client on is that, no, I didn't have a chance to see your client. I never noticed that they were in a position of peril. I didn't see them until I was right up on them and the accident happened. So then you got to get an expert, I guess, to try to disprove that, that had they been paying attention, they would have seen. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any other ways besides that last clear chance you guys can get around the contributory? Well, and then, there, then there's the issue of gross negligence. So Which if you, you guys have really limited North Carolina too. Yes, yes. So, you know, gross negligence um, has really been kind of restricted. Um, in North Carolina, and so some of the things where we see that really apply as far as gross negligence were uh, issues with uh, speeding of the defendant. So if the um, driver was going in, in excess of the speed limit, when we're talking excess, we're talking, you know, of course, are really looking at 10 miles more over the speed limit. There's also, of course, drunk driving or the use of drugs while operating a vehicle um, and things of that nature um, that may cause the, may be another cause of the collision that we're show that the defendant were, was grossly negligent. One of the things that we're really working on right now, um, trying to get some good law established on, is the use of cell phones yeah. um, as being a factor um, for applying gross negligence. 
Um, courts have been very reluctant to apply that because, you know, they look at the old case law and they said, oh, well, we're not really here to make new case law. If, um, if legislature wants it to be considered as being gross negligence, they'll write it into the statute. Um, but we're really pushing to try and get some legislation done to have that in effect. Well, the good thing, you, know, you have all those studies that show that using a phone while driving is equivalent of having a 0.10 blood alcohol equivalent of drunk driving. It's just getting the judge to do the right thing or getting the legislature to do the right thing. That's right. And, I, and again, I think that because they're so used to how the law was before and old standards of law, a, a lot of judges are just reluctant, especially at the trial level, just reluctant to take that next step. Yeah, so I guess you've got to make a really good record then if you ever want to take one of these up. That's right. If you have the right case. That's And, and that's it. Case selection. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. Now, I bet they'll happen to work under that challenging environment. When you get a case, let's say in South Carolina, uh, where another place where you try cases that doesn't have that law, it's got to make you a better lawyer. It, it, it does. And here's the here's the hinge point of working in other states. Um, if you're going to work in other states, you've got to recognize that the value of those cases is different based on the jurisdiction that you're in. So I can't evaluate a case in North Carolina the way that I would evaluate a case in South Carolina because of comparative negligence. And I think a lot of attorneys, you know, make that mistake, especially if they get a, you know, get a case out of state. Um, they're working with another attorney. You know, you have a conflict in where they, they see value of the cases. So it's always good if you're working in another jurisdiction to make sure that you associate counsel within that jurisdiction so that you're aware about the, the preferences of the juries, you're aware, you're aware of the locales that you're trying the case, and you're aware in general about the value of the case. But you're right, um, you know, the cases in South Carolina, I would much rather take those cases to trial than in North Carolina. But I think all the work that you're already used to doing, all the process, this, the, the fact that you're used to doing where other lawyers may just get a police report and file suit or sort of claim you're used to going out there and interviewing the witnesses and talking to the police officers and showing that your client didn't do anything wrong at all because that's still, no matter what the law is, in a comparative negligence state, you often get deemed twice. One, they put a percentage on you. Right. And then two, they put lower damages because they just don't feel like it's as fair. And so I think it's got to make you more prepared and, a, and more thorough than those of us who can get sloppy because we practice in a jurisdiction is a little easier. Well, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, as a, so, so in North Carolina, every defense attorney knows that contrib is going to bar a client from recovery. So regardless if there's an issue of contributory negligence or not, they're pleading it. Yeah. And so until, you know, you have enough facts to have that dismissed on summary judgment, um, you know, you're building your case. And if you don't build your case, then at any point in time, your case can get dismissed. If you don't do it correctly and you get to trial and the judge thinks that you haven't done enough to prove that your client wasn't contributorily negligent, you run a risk of getting your case dismissed. Wow. So. You also have a, a sudden emergency uh, defense that seems more robust than other places. Tell me about that. That's right. Um, so uh, the, the law on sudden emergency for for defendants essentially says that if the defendant is placed in a situation where there is an emergency situation that is not um, created by the defendant, then they can receive um, the sudden emergency defense. And the sudden emergency defense essentially says that if you're placed in an emergency situation at no fault of your own, that your duty is only to do what a reasonable person would have done. And so you, you run into that a lot of times in, in cases that involve weather, uh -huh. um, even sunlight. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've got a case coming up for trial um, where a defendant was driving behind multiple vehicles that were stopped. But because the defendant said that when she came over the hill, she was blinded by the sunlight, she was presented with a sudden emergency. Now, of course, our argument there is that, you know, if you're driving out in daylight, you must be aware that there's a possibility of sun glare. So you do what, whatever you need to do. You put your, your window shade down. You put your sunglasses on. You do, and you drive slower. You take more precautions on the right. roadway. Um, so, but that's the kind of thing that happens when sudden emergency is brought up as a defense um, by the defendants in the case. I've seen you've given a good presentation. Like when, when they say the weather, sudden emergency because of the fog or because of the 
what road? I mean, what do you what do you do to overcome that? Well, um, it depends on what kind of case you have, but. One of the things, and this is the great thing about being a part of the trucking litigation group and, and litigating those kind of cases, that I've learned quite a bit. And one of the things I do in trucking cases is you rely on the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations. You rely upon industry standards with regards to what, what, other, what are other companies doing when they're, you know, come across these kind of issues. Then you rely on things that every commercial driver is supposed to learn with regards to the commercial driver's license manual and uh, what they need to study to become a commercial driver. But on regular auto cases, because I learned that in the in the trucking aspect, on the regular auto cases, I still use the driver's manual to show what is reasonable. Right. And you know, I've used it in several jury trials where I go in. I said, you know, one of the first things we learn as a um, new driver is things that can keep us safe on the roadway. One of those things is that you need to take extra precaution when you're driving in inclement weather, whether it be rain, sleet, or snow. And then I use the driver's manual as a cornerstone to show the thing that most drivers are trained on whenever they're getting their license. You know, I, we do the same thing. I actually have a, I have a standing set of documents that we produce whether anyone asks for them or not because I just don't want any argument, I can't use them at trial, and one of them is our driver's manual. Uh, it's the regular one that everybody goes in the Texas driver handbook that you study to get your driver's license. And, you know, most jurors, they keep changing the cover is the only problem. Most jurors uh, remember one cover, but they, everyone remembers having to study that to get past their driving test. And so it's a, a really good, I think it's even better than the commercial driver's license manual because everyone's read it. Uh, but then just some people in case, you know, not everyone listening here is an expert trucking, uh, so let's say we have like a foggy road or a wet road. Is there a regulation that addresses that? Absolutely. What does it say? I don't know, you know, chapter and verse. I, I never remember chapter and verse. Well, well unfortunately, <laughs> I, unfortunately, I do because in North Carolina, it's brought up quite a bit. Uh -huh. um, we have a lot of uh, commercial accidents that happen um, during the time period of uh, usually between November and February. And those are the time periods in which North Carolina roads become the the most treacherous with ice, sleet, and things of that nature. And when you're talking about a commercial driver who's driving um, some of the back roads that are not treated properly, you know, it, it causes problems. It causes a lot of accidents. So one of the first things that, that, that I look at is I look at um, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulation 392.14. And in looking at that regulation, it talks about commercial drivers using extreme caution. Um, when I see those words, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind um, is taking more caution than you normally would when you're driving on a roadway. It's, it's a mandate that those drivers take the extreme caution whenever they're driving on the roadways when you reach anything like fog, mist, rainy conditions, and things, sleep, things of that nature. Um, and so I use that as a springboard to explain to the jury, um, one of the things I love to do is I love showing that regulation to the driver and uh, asking the driver, what do you think that means? Exactly. And then using that driver's definition as a, as a, as a foundation to talk with the vice president of the company, safety director, their managers, because they're essentially going to say the same thing. And at the end of the day, what they generally come back and say is, I need to be extremely careful. But then sometimes I hear the argument, well, you know, I was going 55 and a 70, I've slowed down, what else do you want from me on this icy road? And so is there anything else from the other publications? Because the problem with the, is it 392.14? That's right. All right, like I said, I, I know, I'm an index guy. I, I, I see all these guys and they know chapter and verse and I'm, I know it's there and I know how to look it up. Well, Michael, I'm not one of those, I just know that one. <laughs> you know how about that one? Okay. I know that one, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I still seem to do all right, so. Uh, the uh, is there something else that gives some more specifics as to what they need to do, uh, what extreme caution means in, in certain situations? Well, you know, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations place a mandate on commercial carriers that they have drivers that are operating on the roadway that are fit 
to operate on the roadway. So when you're talking about that, that, that simply means that they have a duty to make sure that these drivers are trained on whatever conditions they may face when they're out on the roadway. So you have a lot of companies, you know, companies that have been in business for a long time who have set out things um, that they train their drivers on, weekly meetings, monthly meetings that they meet with their drivers on, on safety tips, safety meetings, going over these different things. They create great publications. And so one of the first places that I look, I go back to the commercial driver's license manual. That, that, that has real specific how slow down by a third, slow down by half, slow down to a cross. Absolutely. And, and I love showing that in my depositions because, you know, when you're talking about what is reasonable for these drivers to do, um, there's nothing more reasonable than what you have been trained on in order to get your commercial driver's license. Yeah. And then I look at the company itself, and one of the things that I've found that has really helped on those cases are the company manuals. Um, companies like Old Dominion, um, Freightliner, um, um, uh, different, different companies that, that have these manuals, they have specific sections in there about what drivers are to do when they're dra traveling in adverse weather conditions. Um, what you do is you use those excerpts from the employee manual. You show that the employee signed off on it. He was supposed to have knowledge of it. Um, and you use that to show a difference in what they were trained to do versus what they actually did. Well, you know, at the end of the day, we want to be able to tie it back to the company itself. And so one of the things I also like to do is go back and talk with the director of safety, whoever it may be, about how often did you meet with your drivers and train them on? Yeah. Was this a yearly meeting? Was this a monthly meeting? Was this something that you made sure was in their mind whenever the season came for inclement weather? I mean, you got drivers who are driving all around the all around the country. Do you talk with them about that enough where they're aware of it, or do you just let them go on their own guidance? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the preventable accident uh, manual uh, has great questions for the company. You know, it's like, do you ever have anyone ride along with your drivers? See how they do it. Do you talk to your drivers to find out what they know? You know. It's, Showing someone a video is not training. I mean, training, you have to decide what your standard is. You've got to teach them the standard, and then you got to test to make sure they know it, and then you got to reinforce it, make sure they remember it. Because I don't know about you, but we both passed the bar exam many moons ago. Uh, would you want to take it again tomorrow? Absolutely like, not. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, you got to study for it. You right. Don't, you don't remember things from 10, 20 years before. And, you know, the one case that you and I had together in, in North Carolina, they trained that driver 18 years before pretty well, but he had no training. And when I took his deposition, he didn't know how to do following distance, how far he was supposed to look ahead, how long, how long he needed to stop. He didn't know any of that stuff. Um, well, Michael, you bring up a good point because one of the things that I often find is, is that um, when I'm questioning the driver and I ask them, um, if I use the term federal motor carrier safety regulation, what is your understanding as to what that is? Half of them have no idea what I'm talking about. You have to say the green book. They have to say the green book that's in their truck. And then that gets into a whole other conversation. Well, the green book in your truck, how often do you pull it out? Well, it's in there, but I don't pull it out very often. Or, you know, I, yeah. it, or, or you know, they gave it to me when I first started working here, but I have no idea where it is now. But I know how to drive a truck. But I know how to drive a truck. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you knew how to drive a truck that well, we wouldn't be here, buddy. <laughs> you can't say that. Well, I guess you can. Yeah, you can. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. So what are some other things you do to try to make the case, you know, okay, so you're, you figured out a way to try to get past all your sudden emergency, your contributory. What are some things that you've done to try to make the case about the company and not the driver so that it becomes a bigger case? Well, one of the first things is making sure that, first of all, in discovery, I have all the information that I need to go in and question these folks. That means if they've got employee handbooks, if they've got training material, 
and one of the things, I'm sorry, I just want to go back. One of the things you asked me about earlier is what, what do I use to, to show what the driver should have done in these kind of conditions. Yeah. One of the other key components, there's all kinds of training materials that are out there. J.J. Keller being one of those yeah. great training materials. And oftentimes than not, you know, these companies have the J.J. Keller materials that are in their possession they have purchased to train their drivers on. So that's one of the things I asked for. So I've got a collection of J.J. Keller materials that I've requested in Discovery to show what they've trained their drivers on. Um, and that material is, is, is fantastic. Yeah, I tell my lawyers at my firm, like, when you're handling a new kind of case, get the J.J. Kellett video. We usually have them, but if not, order it and watch it. I mean, even the others, like, we have a ex tanker explosion case, uh, uh, workplace, it's not a trucking case, it's like a, a railroad tanker. Our client mm -hmm. was claiming it, and something happened, and it blows up, and he gets killed for that. Uh, but, so Mallory's getting ready to do depositions to do discovery. First thing she does, he orders the J.J. Keller training video on confined spaces and hazardous communications and, and watches them to learn what the roles are and see what people are supposed to be trained. And then we know how to craft our discovery and where to go right. and then what questions to ask and, and whether they're BSing you. That's, a, that's actually good stuff, Michael. And I, I will tell you that the, the importance about those training materials is the fact that it is some very difficult information that is reduced to where a lay person can understand it. Right, because reading the regs is, even for me, it's confusing. But when yes. I watch the video that's made for a truck driver or a railroad worker or whoever else with a GED is what they, what they're, that's what they're aiming at. They simplify them, and that's what we need. You know, we need to understand on that basis to be able to explain it. And you know, it's uh, I found those videos. I, I don't know any expert where one hour of their time costs less than the videos. The videos right. are always cheaper than one hour of expert time, and, and they're plain English unlike a lot of our experts. That's right. What else, anything else on making about the companies? Well, the other thing is, is that you, you know, you want to really organize your depositions, um, and I found that to be very helpful. Um, so making sure that you go in and you take the 30B6 depositions so that you can find that which persons are over what areas so that you make sure that you're deposing the right people. And I really make sure that I, that I craft my notice of 30B6 deposition so that I get the right people so that if they are testifying on behalf of the company, it's enough to hold the company responsible for what's being testified to. Um, I recently uh, went to New York to do a, a deposition of a person who was uh, stated to be a safety director of the busing company. Uh -huh. So I get there and I'm, I'm doing this deposition. And the first thing that happens is I'm, I begin asking him questions and realize he doesn't really understand English um, because he still speaks Russian. And so uh, by using the translator, I asked him, I said, you know, are you the safety director for this company? And he comes back and said, no, we have no safety director. And so, you know, it's all downhill from there. Um, but you hold their feet to the fire with regards to making sure that they provide you people who are responsive to your notice, who can hold the company responsible because they're not going to go back to the, to the judge and say, oh, judge, I messed up and I designated X person when I should have designated Y person. No, you get one chance to do it and you do it right. Yeah, and that's great. And the, the reason they get away with that so often is because so many lawyers just settled the case without ever taking that deposition. That's and correct. so they'll say, well, we have a safety person. We have this, we have that. And then when you actually depose them, you know, you often find out that not at all. I remember we had one that they said, oh, yeah, we audit logs because they had, gotten, <laughs> they had uh, gotten an unsatisfactory, no, I'm no, sorry, conditional rating from the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulator, uh, Administrator and Safety Audit. So, you know, they, they come in and they look at the company and say, hey, you have a problem with your logs. And conditional rating can really hurt your ability to get business. So I said, please don't give us conditional. We promise we'll do X, Y, and Z, including auditing the logs to uh, to get better. And they said, okay, well we'll, well, we'll not give you the conditional based on your promise that you're going to audit the logs. And so we deposed the woman that actually audited this driver's logs. And she so said the first thing that she did is she would compare the logs against the fuel receipts, and only the fuel receipts, and maybe one other document. If there are any other, anything that was called falsification, where the log and the fuel receipt didn't match up for where the driver was at what time, they would note that and they would send a report to the driver, we found these problems with logs. Then when they would audit them for whether the driver was driving too many hours, they would ignore all the falsifications they just found and only look at what the driver wrote down, even though they knew it was to be false. And that's what she was trained to wow. do. So you had a company whose policy it was 
was to let the drivers get away with faking their logs. And the value of that case went way up because at first we had this case that you couldn't do in North Carolina because the, <laughs> the driver was making a U-turn, which he shouldn't have been doing. It wasn't illegal, but it was a bad idea on a dark uh, rural road and you don't have really good reflective t reflectivity and it was a 65 mile an hour speed limit. Uh, and my guy came along, didn't see it till too late, crashed into it. But we had a big fight. The police initially drained our driver. By then it was depo, he had backed off of that. But the police report was against our driver. And you know, it was a big fight on liability. But when it became, this driver actually had logged off duty five hours for the wreck. <laughs> wow. This driver way over hours. And when we were able to show that to the police officer and also show that this company has a policy of allowing the drivers to cheat because they know that the information is false and then they purposely ignore it and turn a blind eye to that and say, well, no, he's not driving too many hours because that's what he wrote down, even though we know that's false. The value of the case went way up. They didn't let us try it. Well, Michael, you know, you, you just said that that was probably not a case that we would we would handle in North Carolina. It actually is. Oh, it is. But here, here's here's the difference. They're going to plead contrib contributory negligence, and you have got to do your job from the outset to get the right experts in to prove your case. And what I found is is that because of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations, it it places a extra burden on the carrier. So just like you said, if we can show that the carrier didn't do what they were supposed to do, if the driver wasn't doing what they were supposed to do based on the regulations, you have now gotten over that hurdle. Um, that contributory negligence can bring. And that one we actually, it was a frack tank was the, was the which is all used for oil fracking, yeah. was what he was hauling and they didn't put enough reflective tape on it. It didn't meet the standard and we were able to sh show the picture and he, you know, the, the officer didn't think about it that night but when he saw the picture, he was, yeah, that doesn't meet the standard. Well, if he doesn't even have the, re you know, the, the reflective tape that's required by law, would it be fair to blame the driver? Well, I guess it wouldn't really be fair to blame that driver. But, yeah. you know, it, but I, if I hadn't have shown them the false log first, and that's where he started to, you know, when he saw that this guy had logged being off duty five hours before, and he was way out of hours, that, that changed all he saw the truck driver. So when I started showing him other things, he was a lot more likely to go with me because he realized, hey, this guy duped me. This guy lied to me. Yeah. Uh, he's much more likely to be on our side. Well, Michael, and that's because you did the work. Yeah. And that's what ends up having to happen in uh, any of these cases. You have got to do the work. Yeah. There's no substitute for it, but it, but it pays off. Yeah. It, it's a case settle for so much more, and you do so much better trial with you do another kind of case that I have not done one of these. Um, I'm not even ashamed to admit it because I've made my choices, but uh, I've not done one of these probably for almost 20 years. And that's uh, cases against police for civil rights abuse. Uh, what is, those are those are real tough. Forget contrib. Those are real tough cases. Uh, you, you, you know, that's if you're looking at making money, that's not a, that's not a path to getting rich. No. Uh, what makes you want to do those cases? Well, again, that goes back to my goes back, goes back to my childhood and where I grew up. Um, one of the things that I that I really enjoyed were teachers who would teach talk to me about our rights. Uh -huh. um, you know, what what rights do we have as citizens? So I was a political science major in um, undergrad. Really enjoyed those courses um, because that gets into the whole area of why were these laws created? Why, you know, why do you have these these people making laws to protect people? Why do you have the Constitution? Why is the Constitution this document that we hold so dear here in the United States? And uh, so, the first opportunity I got to actually work on one of these uh, 1983 cases, civil rights case, you know, it really brought me back to my roots um, of political science, thinking about the rights of others. Because the rights, a lot of people kind of misinterpret it, rights. You not only have rights in the United States if you're doing the right thing. You also have rights if you've done the wrong thing. Because we're not a society that um, is going to throw our, the, the, the wrongdoers in our society, we're going to throw them in a pit and we're going to leave them there. They have a right to due process. They have a right to make sure that they're treated equally under the law. They have a right to make sure that you know they're treated like humans. And I think that is the foundation of all of these 1983 cases, is the basic right that you're treated like a human. Um, and so the, you're right, those are, those are extremely tough cases. And oftentimes, probably even more so than contributory negligence, you are not the guy who's riding in on the white horse. You are the guy who 
has a case against somebody, against the police department, and your client is someone who, in the jurors' minds, they've already made up their mind they've done something wrong. So it's your job to convince them that even though this person did something wrong, the Constitution has rights that protect them, and their rights were violated. So okay, I guess just because you did something wrong, maybe you deserve 30 days in jail, but you don't deserve to get killed or to get beaten or to... That's what are right. some of the legal challenges you have to overcome in those kind of cases? Well, I think outside of the legal challenge, probably the first thing that you got to overcome is juror perception. Yeah. Um, because, you know, in their minds, you know, the, the police are right. Yeah. And, and, and they're always right. Um, and police officers do a really good job. Um, they do some of the hardest work um, of anybody in our country. Um, and you have people as with anything, who really hone their craft and do a really good job to make sure they're doing what they need to do. And then you have others who, whether or not they've been swayed by things they've seen, whether or not they aren't properly trained, or whatever may have you, are not doing the right thing. And so that is the first hurdle that you've got to go get through is to show the jury that, you know, even though my guy made a mistake, the mistake didn't entitle him to have the death penalty, which is the use of force, whether it be a gun, whether it be a taser, whether it be beaten, what have you. And then the other thing, the biggest legal hurdle is, um, is, is, is qualified immunity. What's qualified immunity? So qualified immunity essentially is the law that says, hey, we respect that officers have a hard job to do. And if it is something that is in the context of uh, something the officers might not have known they were breaking the law at the time, we're going to give them an out. And for lack of a better term, it is the get-out-of-jail-free card that law enforcement has. Um, and if you look at the case law um, that's been litigated on these issues, I mean, so many cases get dismissed on qualified immunity. Yeah. Because the officers, you know, in, in, the, in the eyes of the court, the officers just didn't know that it was a violation of the constitutional rights of that person. And it's almost like you need a published case saying doing X, Y, or Z is violating someone's constitutional rights before they'll... I, I, la I laugh about it sometimes because it reminds me... I, I'm a cartoon fanatic. Okay. So it reminds me of an old Bugs Bunny and uh, Daffy Duck cartoon in which uh, Daffy Duck wrote this insurance policy for Elmer Fudd that essentially said that this policy applies if it is raining in North Dakota and zebras cross the front of your lawn. <laughs> you know, it has all these stipulations to it, and, and otherwise it doesn't apply. Well, that's the same thing that happens with qualified immunity. Absolutely. But those are important cases. I, I think most police officers just... Like most truck drivers are out there trying to do a job and support the family. Most police officers are trying to do their job right. But, you know, if you don't have some consequence when someone breaks the rules, then it just, it spreads. Right. Uh, and it, you know, I do, it would be hard to do that to other job. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. That, I mean, you're, you're dealing with all kinds of different situations all the time. Uh, you got to control your own adrenaline stuff. But then, but if there's not a consequence, then... You know, we all have some darkness in us. Yeah. Uh, we all have something that, you know, there's a, and some of us have more, there's always this, a, a raging animal that can come out if you don't fight it. And if it's not a consequence, it's, I think, too easy for it. I think once it comes out once, it's easier for it to come out again and again. Well, one of the things, I'll never forget it. When I was in high school, I had a teacher, um, language arts teacher, and she would always tell me, Karani, Character is what you do when you think there's no one watching. Mm -hmm. And so I, I look at these cases sometimes and because these officers feel there's no consequence, because some of these officers feel that there's no one watching, because these officers may feel that even if someone is watching, they know how tough my job is and they're going to give me an out, it is something that continues to happen. One of the downfalls of doing these cases is that, you know, unfortunately, the law enforcement body gets to have the first say in how the outside world perceives these cases. Okay. Because if you notice, when sometimes, most of the time, when events like this happen, you have a briefing from law enforcement about what happened. And that 
one briefing is what tailors what everybody believes, regardless of what evidence comes out later. Right. And so you're fighting an uphill battle to show a contradiction in what law enforcement said at this first meeting versus what actually happened in the case. So are there any techniques that, that work on, you know, that work to kind of, because it's so hard, once people made their mind up about how they see something, they went, then they kind of interpret the rest of the facts to filter what they, what they already have made up their mind. I mean, how do you, is there anything you can do to try to get people to say, wait a minute, I've been lied to? Well, one of the things, one of the things that I've done in, in, in cases like this is I will, um, I will make sure that I get the news footage from whatever press conference is held, whatever stories are placed in the newspaper. And when I get the opportunity to depose the person who made these statements, who's head of law enforcement, I go through and I pick the news conference apart. And I ask them, you said this at the news conference. Now that we're two years later and there's been a proper investigation done, was this truthful? Was this actually what happened? And I walked them through that entire interview just to show, and I and I will play that for the jury just yeah. to show the information that was put out to the public that skewed their perception, wherein when a proper investigation was performed, it was inaccurate. And hopefully that means when they break the court instruction and go Google the case, which they're going to do, <laughs> they'll see. I mean, it's the reality of the world we live in. I mean. You, I don't care what instructors are that you're going to have one of those 12 jurors or whatever number you have in your jurisdiction is going to look it up. At, at least one. And if you're doing civil rights cases, by and large, those things have, have media and then they'll have comments and stories that make you want to throw up. <laughs> you read the... Ab absolutely. You know, I, I try not to even read the comments to the stories because again, you know, people are being fed the information that the person presenting wants to feed them. Yeah. And so, it skews in their mind. And again, you, you know, you see the biases of people when they're, you know, when they're writing comments to these stories, so you don't really want to read that. Yeah. Um, another thing. But you, you also know what you need to deal with if you get jury selection. These are in federal court usually, but if you get jury selection or kind of what you need to be looking out for is as much as it, it is not comfortable to read some of the awful things people write when they're anonymous on the internet. Well, and that also is the importance of focus groups. Focus groups not only for um, you know these 1983 cases, but focus groups for these auto and these trucking cases, because you may think that you've got a slam dunk, and in your mind you've got enough to show the jury you know who was at fault or show why the law enforcement was responsible for what happened. But at the end of the day, those are things that the jury could care less about. It's just attorney language. Right. So what do they care about? I think when you know, win. When you can convince them that you're right, what, what are the themes that they do care about that carries the day? I think that at the end of the day, um, they want to have the feeling that they're upholding the law. If you charge them correctly and give them that power that you are the folks in this courtroom who are able to interpret the law and apply it, not the attorneys not the witnesses, not the judge. It's your job. And once you empower them with that, I think they, they have the, the, the feeling that, you know, they must do this. I think also, um, you know, a lot of times with regards to, you know, the, the damages aspect, you have to be able to show, you know, uh, I'm just going to use the 1983 cases, for example. You have yeah. to be able to show that, um, you know, regardless of what this person did, um, this should not have ended the way that it ended. And at the end of the day, if we don't hold people accountable, then this is something that can happen again and again and again. Same thing with the trucking cases, and especially with the trucking cases with, with, when deaths are involved. Um, I think that juries really cling on to this, whether they knew it before they came into the courtroom or not, they really cling on to this aspect that when you lose someone in your family, the entire family changes. Yeah. The dynamic changes. It is no longer the same. And getting them to really understand that, regardless of whatever numbers you're able to put up, they could care less about those numbers, right. more so than what they care about the dynamic of how this family has changed. So if you're not able to show a relationship between dad and his kids, like we were talking about earlier, dad worked all the time, you know, was never at any of the kids' events, you know, that's harder to convince a, a jury of what these kids lost. Yeah 
versus if you have the opposite. Yeah, I'd much rather have a smaller wage where we don't even put the wages in and the data that was involved. Absolutely. You know, that, that reminds me that in, you know, I don't know that I want to say he did wrong because, but I have the decedent on my last case that I tried uh, had broken the law. He was, was not, did not have the permission of the United States government to be in the United States. He was from Mexico and was actually using another person's name and social security number to work on the job site where he got killed. And for, we can usually keep that stuff out for various reasons that came in in this case. Uh, but it really let me, in my closing argument, where, you know, I had five minutes of rebuttal and I just talked about, you know, God has created all of us equal under our constitution. Everyone is created equal. Every human being has value, you know, and I don't care if you're Kobe Bryant, who made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars wow. are your regal breakfast of art in my case who got paid minimum wage to go dig in a ditch which is what he was doing when he got killed your life has equal value because I tell you if you ask Mrs. Bryant would you give up all that money to have him back for another year what would you do uh, and it resonated uh, and so I think that's something we can do when we talk about you know all people created equal we all have rights and you know God is you know we all have value and, and, and one of the worst things I think when the police take someone's life uh, for a crime that would not be a capital crime. We take away the opportunity for redemption. Michael, that is that is that that is so powerful. Um, in a case that I'm handling right now, it was a it's a uh, um, it was a death that inc- that occurred while the person was in jail, and it was because the person was placed in solitary confinement and wasn't given the um, health care that he needed. And they essentially let this guy um, sit in solitary confinement in his own urine, in his own feces, until he passed away. And this guy, he he had some bad stuff in his criminal history. But one of the things that really resonated with me when I was talking with his daughter, he didn't have a good relationship with his daughter. But the daughter said, during her deposition I'm upset and I'm upset because I will never get the chance to make it right Yeah. and you know that the ability to make it right or, or to fix things yeah. you know that's we count on the, another day to do that yeah. but when you don't have that other day I think I think you're right that's something that really resonates yeah that's, that's what I was thinking feeling right now what you know just to like when you have any other death case where the family relationship wasn't perfect, that's part of what they took away was, and you know, I, I know my own personal life. I mean, my father and I get along great now. There's a period in my time life when we did, you know, thank God that uh, that we both survived long enough to, to both get past our own stuff. Not, it wasn't all on him. I mean, I had my own my own share of blame and the and those problems in our relationship. And uh, you know, thank God that we got past that, and now we have a wonderful relationship. And it, here I have been taken away, that pain would always have been there. Because that, when you have an issue with a relationship with a loved one, it affects you everywhere else in your life, not Absolutely. just in your relationship with them. And I, you know, and I, one of the things I learned, I had to get, I had to heal that before I could become the person I needed to be, before I could love my children, before I could love my wife fully. I had to learn to love my father fully and uh, accept his love fully. Uh, and so I, I think that's real stuff that, but again, you only, as lawyers, we have to take the time to really get to know our people. Because it's got to be real. We can't just say, well, that, that's what we think it would be. It has to be what your client really went through. Yeah, and I think that's another important aspect of it. You know, you've got to, we talk about this all, all the time, but you've got to be willing to put the time in. And that's just not time investigating the, the case, but it's time knowing who your family is. Yeah. Knowing who, who you've got that's going, that's going to testify. Going to the house, spending time with them in their environment. We've got a pretty good group of the AHA, you know, trying to move forward. People have really good ideas, really good ideals. But one thing that kind of bothers me is you look at the faces in the room and you look at the faces in our society and there's a little difference. Uh, I mean, we're a lot more male and a lot more white uh, than society in general. Even as fairly liberal and open-minded as the group is. And I always have this struggle, you know, we need to make it better, but we also need to not be condescending or making people feel like, you know, well, you're not, you know, we're gonna give you a pass, you're not gonna be held to the same standard or something, you know, it, it's, right. uh, you know what I'm talking about, probably better than I do. Uh, 
what are your thoughts on that? How we can improve our world in that way? Well, that's a, that's a, that is an absolutely <laughs> excellent question. Um, and I wish I had a magic pill. Me too. <laughs> that we could take and make this thing right. Um, but there's no magic pill. Um, I just finished serving on a three-year stint as the chief diversity officer for our North Carolina Advocates for Justice, uh-huh. and which is the largest plaintiffs group in, in North Carolina. And, and they actually put that position in place just so we could work to diversify because of these very same issues. I think that when people began to look at that, they, you know, inclusion is not necessarily giving me a seat at the table. Right. Okay. That's not it. Because that can lead to other problems. Yes. Yes. Because I can have a seat at the table all day and there's 12 of us at the table and I still feel like I'm the only one who has nothing in common with the 12 at the table. And you don't want the 11 people to think that the only reason you're sitting at the table is because of the color of your skin. Because that, again, that's another, to me, that is another form of of racism to think that, well, you know, we can't hold them to the same standard or we can't hold her to the same standard because X, Y, Z, bullshit. I mean, you have, if you believe old people are treated equally, you have to treat them equally, but at the same time, you also have to remember, you know, some of my ancestors weren't very nice people right. and there's some ongoing effects so we need to make that right. So how do we balance that out? Well, one of the first things is I think it has to be real. Okay. I can't come up with some type of um, some type of program that I put in place and you not really believe in it because otherwise it's just words on a paper yep. and you're going to do things just because you have to do them. Right. Um, one of the things that I think uh, has happened since I've, I've joined the AJ Trucking Group, um, for me anyway, is it has not just been people who say we're doing it just because we have to do it. Right. Um, these are people that I actually have a really good relationship with. Um, I talk to about things other than trucking cases. Right. Truck, as a matter of fact, trucking cases may be the least thing that we talk yeah, we about. We talk about barbecue. We talk but, about kids. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and, and until I get to know you on that level, um, you will never understand who I am. I will never understand who you are so that we can work together to make this thing better. Because I truly believe that we are better when we have people from other facets of life that come in that add to the pot yep. so that we, because look at the United States, we are not one specific race. We are not one specific sex. We are not one specific religion. We're not any way like that. Yeah. And so until we get a dichotomy of every what everyone has going on, we never really understand. So it makes it harder for me um, to understand what I need to do to represent client X if I'm not willing to um, hear the thoughts and ideas from someone who doesn't look like me. The other thing about this group that I think is, is absolutely fantastic is that I have never um, picked up the phone. I've never sent out an email that I've not received a thoughtful response from a genuine conversation about my question. And it's not, Karana, you're stupid for asking this. Right. Because um, I feel stupid sometimes asking it. So <laughs> You know, it's not that. Um, it's what can we do to make this group better? Because when you're doing well, the group is doing well. And we're making good law that benefits everybody. And so I really love that aspect. Now, and I, and I, quite frankly, I wish that some of the other groups I was involved with had the mindset that I feel here with the AHA group. Yeah, it's really the trucking group, and I'll be honest with you, I've not always felt this way, like if we will, more than 10 years back about the trucking group. Uh, but the current iteration has what I call an abundance mentality, which is there's plenty for everybody. And if we share, we all get better and we all do better. Uh, and having the respect of, you know, everyone has something to offer and we all listen to each other, we all share what we have. And it, it's really empowering. And I think it makes it a better group. I agree. And, you know, the only thing, you know, I, I, 
I can't solve my own problems. I definitely can't solve you know the problems of race relations in the country. And the only thing I try to do is just you know invite people. Uh, they can choose whether to come or not. But I you know that I see someone that may be a good member you know in my community back home, and I just say hey you might want to join this. Uh, you know and that's you know just reaching out. Uh, another thing I do in, in hiring is just I hire with a mindset of there is no correlation between legal ability and heart and race, gender, anything else like that. And so I've had like people where I've been introduced to somebody and somebody, well, and he does great things with diversity and this and that, because I have a fairly diverse firm. Uh, we're not perfect, but I mean, we're right now we're equal men and women. We've been more women before, we've been more men than before. Mm-hmm. We have people of different ethnicities. And I've, I've said, uh, sometimes that diverse person interviewing, I don't give a crap about it. I don't hire for diversity. Right. I I think it is, I don't ever want to hire someone who thought that the only reason they got the job was because of their gender, their religion, their skin color. No, I hire people because they're good. I think they're the best fit. But if you look at their content of their character, it happens to just work out that there are, in fact, if you're a firm that actually just treats everybody like human beings, you tend to, I think because there's other firms that aren't like that, you may attract more, you know, more rainbow in your firm just because you you just. But we don't have a diversity committee. We don't have any particular goals. We just do it because it's right. Well, no, we just do because the the people we interviewed, they were the best person. Uh, But if you if you go in there with the mindset of, you know, this stuff doesn't matter, uh, you end up finding that you know, the best person might not look like me. And that's okay. Well, you know, one of the other things that, you know, I think that, that we run into oftentimes, um, you know, people can become cliquish. Yeah. And uh, whether people realize it or not, um, when you're cliquish, you are really leaving some folks out. Yep. So if I'm at a CLE or any kind of an event and um, there is a click that, is there and I see them talking, they're having just a great time, but I'm standing over here and, you know, yeah. I don't really feel a part of that. That's a problem. The other thing I think is an issue is that when you have people who um, don't speak out um, about things that they see, because it's one thing with me coming in, speaking out and saying, hey, you guys need to be more diverse. You know, uh, I'm tired of coming here and everybody looks <laughs> doesn't look like me. Right. You know, I, I think that what happens is, if I say it, um, it can be taken a certain way and thrown under the table. But when you have others who don't look like you, who say things to that effect, people begin to listen right. um, and, and, and realize that it is not just something that one group is saying over another group, but this is, this is the truth of the matter. Yeah. Well, if you want to fix a relationship, that means everybody involved in a relationship needs everybody. to work at it. Everybody. Uh, Yep. Well, one good thing is that we can have a conversation about it now, whereas, you know, 40, 50 years ago, this would be a very, very, unfortunately, different thing. And so, yeah, I mean, we're not perfect, but if we just, you know, try to raise our kids right and, you know, do what we can in our own lives, hopefully it will have some spread. I agree. Okay, well, that's a good note to end on. Let's try to make this, uh, make do better for our clients, make the world a little better place. And thank you so much for spending the time talking with me. Mike, I appreciate you having Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on ratings and review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. 
I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.